I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, uh, brought to you by Alf Insight. And each episode, we'll be bringing together big names from the world of advertising, marketing, and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity, and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, we're looking at how one of the biggest global FMCG companies is embracing the ecological agenda to affect real change in its environmental impact and how it hopes to take its customers along for the ride. Tati Lindenberg is Vice President of Marketing for Home Care at Unilever which, of course, includes the Persil brand. So, Tati, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, you made a very subtle but a nonetheless distinct change, I noticed, to Persil's campaign slogan, which is from dirt is good to dirt for good. I'd just love to know the thinking behind that. Yes, so, um, Rory, Dirt is Good was created nearly two decades ago, and it was built on a fundamental human dilemma, how much to protect our children and how much freedom to give them to experience the world, learn, develop, and ultimately unleash their potential. And Dirt is Good, I have to say, it's an absolute groundbreaking, provoking, differentiating idea, but it, and it was very in tune with the beginning of the century. And I have to say it dramatically changed people's perception of getting dirty. Actually, I remember back in the day when I I was not even planning to work in advertising, people discussing over dinners, at least my family discussing about, oh, maybe dirt is not that bad. So it was really something that changed society and perception of dirt in general. And it moved from an enemy to be avoided to an ally to be nurtured. And uh, we actually used this brand new perception to drive the core benefit of the product, remove the physical consequences of getting dirt, uh, basically like dirty clothes, uh, whereas parents and children would enjoy the benefits. And this new behavior was fundamentally good for the child. So if you look at all the past advertisings uh, from pursue or more the different brand names that we have, we would always show children learning how to collaborate with others, how to explore the world, how to be brave, how to challenge the norms. So there was always something good for the child who was getting dirty. However, the world changed so dramatically and so fast that we were left with no option but to bring somehow another dimension to the brand. 
And we've done so by acknowledging this alliance between the brand heritage, the business needs, which are different now, obviously, and the behavioral science behind this freedom versus protection tension. And also the parents of young children and the children themselves also changed significantly in the last 20 years. So parents were in general concerned about their kids being the best, overeducated, overachievers, and children were less aware of the larger world's issues. And parents now, uh, conversely, they feel much more overwhelmed. In fact, some of the researches we've been conducting show that only one in four feels optimistic about the world uh, that their children uh, will grow up into. So they tend to now shield children from reality. But the point is, even though parents now feel less optimistic and want to overprotect their children, children, given the new social landscape, unlimited access to a vast amount of information, shortening of childhood and everything else that you see. So basically, children, even the youngest ones, are much more aware of the reality they are facing. And this makes them anxious and concerned. And then, Rory, if you if one looks around, there are multiple examples. So from the likes of Greta, of course, to kids around us. So I remember, for instance, that a year ago, I asked my child, who was then seven, oh, let's think about a dream vacation. So where would you like to go? And I was thinking that he would say Disneyland, because this is probably what I wanted to do when I was seven years old. And he basically told me, mama, can we go to Australia? I want to uh, see the Great Barrier Reef. And I was like, really, why? I, I didn't even know he knew the Great Barrier Reef. When I asked him why, he basically said, mommy, because the, the Barrier Reef will die in a few years and I better see it now before it's gone. So, and I realized his anxiety and he was deeply concerned about the Great Barrier Reef and concerned about, can I see it? Is it true? So obviously this awareness of the environmental issues would, did not exist, I would say, within children a few years ago, but now they know about it and they want to do something about it. So all the research we've been conducting shows that they care for the world and they feel frustrated with the lack of action they see. So these are basically the reasons behind a subtle but distinct change from ease to for good. So nowadays, the ultimate freedom to unleash human potential has another dimension. So in addition to being able to understand orders, learn from the outdoors, outsmart problems, it is also about taking action, however small. It could be simply like learning how to recycle or collecting plastic at the beach, something like this. So it is really about taking action on the things that kids care about, giving them the freedom to drive the change they wanted to see, helping unleashing their potential. And in fact, we know that when kids do something good for others, that includes the environment, but it could be something good for your neighbor or at school, children tend to develop more compassionate values versus self-interest one. And these compassionate values improves their self-esteem and helps them to become more rounded kids. So that's my long answer to your question to why is two four. So it's in no way as if an abandonment of the previous message in a way, it contains implicitly and I suppose explicitly actually, the point that we're living in a kind of over sanitized world, which is 
damaging to children's development, which I can strongly believe. But you're, you've brought it into a slightly more pro-social message rather than the purely individualistic one. That would be the kind of the, the, the reframing that's, that's gone on. Yes. And I'm glad you, I'm certainly glad you haven't abandoned the initial um, insight because I think, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned that fact about sort of hyper-competitive childhood as well, uh, which I think is uh, definitely alarming. Um, there's a, a very, very good talk I heard from Michael Sandel, who's the Harvard philosopher, and he was talking, you know, he's exposed essentially to people who've gone into Harvard, who you'd think of as, you know, the most successful kids of, of their generation with everything to look forward to. And he refers to them intriguingly as kind of, not all of them, but a significant proportion. He refers to as wounded winners, that even if you succeed in this race, the cost of participation is so great. It's also, I, I think the question of sanitization is also really interesting because one of the things, and this is one of, the great, one of the great advantages of being 55 in this business, Nassim Taleb makes a similar point actually, which is the, the great thing about being quite old is he said, the old and the young have asymmetric experience because old people know what it's like to be old, but they also remember what it's like to be young. Whereas the young only know what it's like to be young. And one of the things I really notice is the extent of domestic over-sanitization. Um, you know, the idea of domestic perfection. So if you watch, for example, TV dramas from the 1970s, even when they're set, as a lot of them are, in sort of upper middle class, fairly wealthy homes, the interiors of the homes are slightly shabby. You know, there, there's always something that you can see needs a little bit of work. And this idea we've been sold on of complete kind of sanitized perfection indoors does kind of, and obviously I suppose you could say that Unilever is a huge beneficiary of it in one sense. You know, the idea that everything has to smell perfect, look perfect, you know, there isn't a single piece of cracked paintwork in sight. Uh, you know, in some ways then, you know, you're a commercially a beneficiary of this. I'm not sure it's altogether good. And I think, I think it, 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 there's a very interesting question here, which is we tend to assume that all competition which raises standards is good. But actually, for example, I've often argued that if you raise culinary standards too high, it becomes too much trouble to have a dinner party, so nobody does. So the central benefit gets lost in the quest for perfection. To some extent, you know, the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And um, I think that's particularly true in people's aversion to dirt. You know, and one, one of the other things when I was young, if you grew up in the 1970s, is most the interiors of most people's cars were pretty shitty. You know, there were people who were kind of anally retentive, you know, clean freaks. And their car would have, you know, typically accompanied by a thing called fur orange, which was, you may remember, was an in-car kind of deodorant. But most, most people's cars kind of, you know, there was a bit of mud here and there was a bit of rubbish there. And, you know, now, actually, I would argue that actually having a clean car for safety reasons isn't a bad principle. But I noticed these changing standards. Now, of course, the interesting thing is our kids don't notice because as Nassim says, they don't remember the alternative. 
Um, my father always grumbles. He's 90. He says, you know, when we used to rent a holiday home by the coast, you know, it would be slightly shabby, but you felt you could kind of, you know, chill out in a slightly, you know, in a, on a sofa with a couple of broken springs. You know, he said, now you end up in this bloody house and gardens show home where you almost feel you can't make yourself comfortable because, uh, you know, because of the risk of damaging something. And, and so how, how does Unilever cope with that? Essentially, you know, it is a tension that, that, you know, what is to some extent commercially ideal would be to have a, a nation of total clean freaks. But actually, uh, there is a cost to that, I think. Absolutely. And uh, we do know, I think there are two aspects, the more physical aspect, of course, and we used to say that dirt is the sign of a life fully lived. Mm. So you, you need to get that. You need to experience life. So that's what we believe. And then we remove the consequences. So I tend to flip it in a different way that we, we are not encouraging people to be like uh, clean freaks. Uh, oh. But at the same time, the more we encourage them to live and experience their lives in many different ways, be it because they just want to enjoy. And in the case of kids, they just want to play. Sometimes that's all they dreamed of. Sometimes they do want to take action on, on different uh, aspects of life. But the more they do it, the more dirty clothes you're going to have to wash anyways. So that is the beauty, I think, of the insight that we don't need to tell people to avoid that quite the opposite. They have to embrace it and we will take care of it later. Now, I think an important thing when you've changed from dirt is good to dirt for good, how do you make the exhortation actionable? Because one of the reasons I think behind an awful lot of, well, I think it manifests itself as anxiety in the very young and then anger in the, you know, people in their late teens or 20s is that we're, we're suddenly confronted with a surfeit of information. By the way, which is probably too negative. Because, you know, I mean, you know if you think about it, I, I grew up in a weird, weirdly optimistic world, which was a permanent threat of nuclear annihilation to some extent, okay? So, you know, first of all, the information is probably too pessimistic, I would argue. Um, and that's the nature of news programming, which is, as I always said, you know, if you think about it, what is the most viewable thing in the world? Well, it's a fight. It's an argument. It's a disagreement. It's anger. You know, if I heard two people outside the window behind me discussing the weather, I wouldn't even get out of my chair. But if I heard two people having an argument or a fight, my nose would be glued to the window. And so I think news, news, we've got a problem here in that um, news overemphasizes conflict simply for purposes of getting, you know, getting attention. But then we also have this thing, I think, that we have an internet which essentially delivers a lot of information about what needs to be done, but it hasn't yet given us the means to coordinate to do it. And so when, you, when you're actually develop, designing a kind of pro-social message, what are you doing to accompany that or, or to deliver the possibility of meaningful action? Um, because I, th I, th I think that's, that's where, to be honest, an awful lot of what you might call purpose-led or mission-led advertising breaks down. And Howard Luck Gossage, the 1970s advertising guy, who in a way pioneered what you might call pro-social advertising, a uh, really fascinating man. He always said that, you know, there's an awful lot of advertising which makes you angry about something but doesn't tell you what to do. And so when he did campaigning advertising, he insisted that this, bear in mind, this is 1970, there was a coupon that you could send to your congressman or your senator or whatever, or there was some action you could take. 
uh, which which could convert good intent. And I think frustrated, creating frustrated good intentions is actually more of a problem than it is a solution. So I was just wondering, do you back this up fairly heavily with activities that match the the purpose, if you like? Yes, absolutely. I think there are two two points here, Rory. One is the anger piece. When we were developing the new campaign called Rio Change, we tried really hard to find a balance in which we would provoke people to take action, but we would do it in a way that we did not want them to feel bad in anger or guilty or anything. It was much more like small actions matter. So, and we say that, Real change happens when we roll up our sleeves and get dirty, which is how we link it back to, to the, the brand purpose and slogan. So we were very, very careful to make sure that people would feel, would feel a bit uncomfortable so they would be able to take action, but not so uncomfortable that they would just turn off and say, I'm not doing it. So that was a fine balance that honestly took us one year to get to where we are, so much research and exploration and a lot of creativity involved to try to find this balance between making people uncomfortable in a way that they feel they could act. So that is one point that I would like to say. And on your second uh, question about what we're doing to back this up, we are definitely now working with a number of different NGOs, and this is a whole new world for me, experts and also academic partners to deploy a program that our intention is to help 10 million young people to take action and positive action for a better world. So we will launch this program now in 2021, and it includes partners like Kids' Rights across the world and National Geographic in the UK. So we are doing our program to back this up and offer both schools parents and kids with tools to ensure that they could take action in an easy way. Because also what is important is we don't want to uh, make these a self-sacrifice type of activity, like, oh my God, I have to do it. Kids don't want to do it. Parents don't as well. So we, and that's the reason why we have partners like NetGeo, because we wanted to make sure that it's an enjoyable thing and it should be, uh, but we, we must do it nevertheless. And um, Unilever, actually, I'm, I'm always mixed about purpose-led advertising. Uh, the reason I have a m mixture is that there are cases where Dove would be another example, I think, where it's entirely relevant and it's central to the uh, function of the brand. And then there's what I call planting a flower bed on the Death Star, which is kind of, you know, it's green. You know what I mean? It's kind of, look, we've planted some flowers on our Death Star. It's kind of greenwashing or it's tokenistic or in some cases it's entirely irrelevant. Now, uh, one of the things I think that's always worth noting is there are brands that have a license to do this a little bit. Um, and Unilever, I, I, I think, has more of a license than most because I always feel this slightly about Ogilvy when there's a debate about gender equality in the uh, advertising industry, which is, you know, in fairness to Ogilvy, we were kind of into this before it became fashionable. And I think it's fair to say that Unilever was into pro-social business, essentially, uh, before it became a buzzword. Because, I mean, the very origins of Lever Brothers were essentially uh, extremely benign. I don't know if it's actually Quaker in its origins, but it certainly, uh, it certainly comes from some very, very interesting um, uh, 
essentially, uh, it, it was pro-social pro, pro capitalism before the concept even existed. And so what's driving you particularly to further the environmental agenda? Because I, I suppose initially the whole point of cleanliness was literally about a question of survival and, and disease avoidance. I mean, you know, we clapped for the NHS, but we ought to remember that a hundred years work went into getting everybody to wash their hands and own soap. You know, that was a hundred years of marketing work, effectively encouraging people to wash regularly and to keep reasonably sanitary homes. Um, and I'm not suggesting that deserves people going outside and clapping. I mean, it was self-interested activity. But nonetheless, you know, uh, businesses of that kind have performed a really important function in renorming. And um, what, what, what do you, what's the great impetus, I suppose, for Unilever particularly to um, uh, further this uh, green approach? Okay, so if I move a little bit away from dirt is good at this stage, because of course it would impact the dirt is good in general. So the sustainable living plan is at the heart of Unilever values, as you know, and, uh, and you're right to say that the company's purpose 120 years ago was to make cleanliness commonplace. So it's a spot on and has always been about uh, do the right thing or do it in the right way. And we are living now, of course, through biological, social, economic, uh, and equality crisis all simultaneously. But we cannot forget the climate crisis that we, we have now. And also, we have a very limited window to take action and work to avoid like a catastrophic consequences. Well, I watched like Dave documentary very recently, so I'm very in tune with all the consequences now. So we know that there can't be healthy people or healthy business in a sick planet. That's pretty much it. It's not a matter of uh, do you want to be greener because it is cool? No, we need to be greener for this business to even exist in 50 years. That is pretty much, I think, the wake up, wake up call of the industry. And that's the reason as well, if I trickle down from Unity Virtue Home Care, the division that I work uh, in, uh, recently, we launched a program called Clean Future, and this is a vision of home care to drastically decrease our impact on the environment. And one of the things we are doing is to actually invest 1 billion euros to fund the very best research and development minds to eliminate our reliance on fossil fuels and diversify our carbon resources. So we want to be 100% renewable or have 100% renewable recycled carbon by 2030. And I find that super exciting because there are, I actually learned recently about this whole new world of different carbon sources. We call it carbon rainbow. So you have the purple one, which comes from the atmosphere, then green coming from biological sources, gray from recycled waste. So it's a new bioeconomy and uh, we need it, as I said, to survive. So it is built it is building on our heritage, but at the same time, it is something that unavoidably we have to do. You also mentioned something which I think is brilliant, which is you don't want to make the behavior a chore. And I always notice if you go back to the early days of soap advertising, um, uh, the behavior was a beneficial behavior, but you included a selfish benefit in that, with the possible exception of Lifebuoy, which I think was sold on kind of health and hygiene messages, 
Um, you also, what I what I call it is scenting the soap. You also suggested there was an individual selfish benefit to being clean. Uh, to be honest, in 1920, that was probably sexual attractiveness, or you know, or you know, or something of the kind. Um, I always remember that the the line "always the bridesmaid, never the bride" was this wasn't Unilever, but it was made popular by a Listerine advertisement. I might add, with a female copywriter, um, and so there's that mixture of self-interest and collective interest. And I think you're absolutely right. I think very passionate environmental campaigners want to make it about self-sacrifice because of course their whole status derives from what you might call costly signaling or commitment. Now, the truth of the matter is when you, when you said in Unilever that the point was you wanted to make cleanliness commonplace, if you want these behaviors to scale, there has to be some degree of self-interest. What are, what other things are you looking at? For example, I suppose the whole clothing industry, which of which Purcell is a part. First of all, you have I think fast fashion, which is environmentally damaging. You know, you have the disposability of clothes. Then you have, of course, the temperature at which you wash the clothes, the environmental effect of the chemicals that are actually deployed to do it. You have the question of how frequently people wash their clothes. And this is, again, something where unless you're 55, you know, I mean, basically, OK, I think in 1975, I hope I got this right. You probably did change your pants every day if you're reasonably middle class. OK, I'm not sure you do. You know, I'd, I'd wear the same shirts two days running, you know, and, you know, you certainly wouldn't have things dry cleaned with monotonous regularity. And so, you know, there is that interesting question that we've arguably set a, a bar or a norm, which is a little too high. And I notice you have these products like Day Two, which strike me as really clever which are essentially they're a halfway house between putting something in the wash and merely re-wearing it. Are those part of the actual, the, the, what you might call the environmental push? Yes, they are. You're absolutely right. So we do have a program on how can we um, help reducing, I would say, not reducing, let me put it in a different way. We have a program with comfort to ensure that uh, Clothes would live longer, as we say. So if you use, which is something also that I've learned recently, if you use a conditioner like Comfort, it's not only to give you fragrance, but it will actually coat your clothes and make it uh, last longer. So that is one point. And then day two, absolutely. It's perfect for this in-between clothes that you don't need to wash it again, but at the same time, you don't want to put it back on in your wardrobe. So we have different initiatives, but I think what... What was driving uh, me in Persio was to ensure that not everyone would have the mental capacity to embrace like being environmental friendly in every single small decision, including like buying FMCG products. So this capacity is limited given what everyone has to deal with living and especially this year, I have to say. So what... I wanted to do is to democratize green choices for the masses. So it is about do it in a way that we don't compromise the fundamental product benefits. So Pursue, Omo, Rinso, Breeze, as I said, we have a, a number of different names, has always been about top performance products because we have to remove the toughest dirt, the toughest stains. And this was something that I did not want to compromise. So the big question was how you can be greener but in the same way, keeping the same performance and, again, allowing people not to self-sacrifice. 
Because I'll give a very clear example. Usually when you think about um, sustainable choices, you think about free from. So removal of something which is a baddie. Yes. So um, a good example is fragrance. Uh, and we debated a lot internally. What should we do? Should we just remove fragrance? Because some fragrances can be non-biodegradable. So a lot of people would not know this, but then one option that you have is to say, okay, fragrances are not biodegradable, so let's just remove it. And then you see some, so many like laundry soaps saying fragrance free. But people feel they are sacrificing because a good, uh, uh, some clothes that smell good is one of the key drivers of consumer's preference. And one of the reasons why we wash clothes as well, not every single load has really dirty clothes. Sometimes you just want to refresh and leave it with like a nice smell. So we were like, no, no, we were not going to remove fragrance, but how can I use bioscience and the scale of Unilever with fragrance houses to do fully biodegradable fragrances? So the ones we use now are 80% biodegradable. We still have the 20% to go, but we thought that that was a much better choice because we keep what consumers love it, which is the Perseus smell or the Omo smell, but we do it in a way that is better for the planet, avoiding that sort of sacrifice that we were uh, talking about. Yeah, fragrance free is the kind of thing my wife would buy, actually. And I'm very grateful, by the way, for your point about uh, fabric conditioner making clothes last longer because uh, she's always averse to adding anything. And so I might, I'm, they're, they're, they're following this, this podcast, there will be a long lecture to my wife on them. Other things I've often looked at, one, one question I do look at, and this is, I think, really important with, for an organisation with Unilever's scale, is, as I think you implied, we're asking consumers to do a bit too much. And a parallel there, I think, is health advice, which is what tends to happen with health advice is there are lots of things which benefit a small... So if you take salt reduction, okay, then actually most people uh, on the planet aren't sensitive to salt. It doesn't pose any cardiovascular risk because their body is perfectly capable of rebalancing blood pressure in response to salt ingestion. But about 5 to 10% of people, or it might be less actually, are significantly affected. And so the advice goes out to everybody, reduce your salt intake. Okay, because in aggregate, that will benefit overall health, even though to, now that's fine on its own. The trouble is when you have 15 pieces of advice, which are all essentially advice that benefits a minority, but which is targeted to a majority. You're now giving people so much to do. They go, I can't eat salt. I can't eat bacon. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. OK, I'm going to give up on all of it. Do you think there's a choice architecture problem in terms of environmental behavior in that we need to give people a menu? OK, and I've, I've been proposing this for a while. Here are 12 things you can do. Pick six. Well, you may have, you know, it could be a bit like um, uh, countdown. You know, I'll have three from the top row and two from the middle. In other words, here are five big behaviours. Here are five small behaviours. Um, try and pledge to do three of the big ones and three of the small ones or whatever. And then you would give people essentially a manageable list of, of activities uh, which would allow them to make a meaningful difference without asking them to make impossible decisions. 
Um, and so, you know, it's you know when you have a large number of you know quite a lot of quite a lot of environmental advice is pretty difficult to follow. If you have kids, for example, I mean the whole process of having kids is essentially quite wasteful. <laughs> and um, I've always, I mean, I've always been very keen on something. I don't know if you've ever considered this, which is encouraging people to put washing machines, tumble dryers, and dishwashers on uh, later in the evening. Because the carbon impact, the UK is pretty green powered by a mixture of imported nuclear, indigenous nuclear and wind uh, late at night. So actually, if you put your washing machine on, it's the same amount of electricity used if you put it on at 11 o'clock at night. But the amount of carbon produced is inordinately less. And I've often wondered that there are easy behaviours like that, easy wins. But they're not, they're not universal. You know, if you work nights, I don't want people leaving the house and putting their tumble dryer on, you know, if you work the night shift. But a large number of people adopting that behavioural shift seems to me would make quite a big difference. We've, all, we've already turned the temperature down to 30 degrees. That's another achievement, I think. Absolutely. So, um, and Rory, that's why we're trying to make the first the products as simple as possible to consumers. Because I always, always think that consumers don't have to pay for our inability as an industry to make sustainable raw materials and manufacturing process like uh, cheaper. So that's why as well, for instance, we haven't increased the prices when launching like the new Persio. It's pretty much the same. So what we try to do is the product that we sell, which is our primary business, we try to make it, it's like the same top performance, just greener. You don't have to overthink on that. And then to the point that you asked me about purpose and how we live it, we've been trying to find easy ways for consumers to be more sustainable at home. And it includes a number of different things. As you said, could be 10 to 30 degrees. Now we have products which are effective at 20 as well. Of course, given the pandemic, some of those, those things are not being followed, but that's a different context that we are living. But we also include small things like how to recycle properly. It might not be true in the UK, but in many markets in Asia, for instance, we ha actually have to teach people how do they start segregating uh, their waste. And that is super relevant. But I agree with you that the key underlining principle is ensure that it's simple. And it's like a few tips that you can give to people and do X, Y, and Z, but not try to go everywhere. And in fact, what we've done with the Dirt is Good campaign is in each market, we choose one environmental subject. So in Indonesia, for instance, we chose plastic. So even though we have greener formulations and we briefly speak about it in the advertising, the whole ecosystem is about plastic. So it is how you collect plastic, how you segregate plastic to make it single-minded because I fully agree with you. Uh, it's just too much. The overwhelmness of information that we discussed at the beginning, which makes uh, kids uh, anxious also makes like adults anxious in terms of what I'm going to do because there is just so much and they feel overwhelmed. And that's why, yes, we needed to oversimplify the message and choose our battles because we, we will not be able to do everything. I really applaud that. The business of country per, by country by country, you have a different area of focus and you keep it about that one thing. Because otherwise, the risk is people simply get blinded by the headlights. And I think, you know, I think that's a really important question. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So with this new design and packaging that comes with it, what are the tangible benefits as well as the warm, fuzzy fuzzy feeling of doing the right thing? Uh, What else have you built into the design of the packaging? No, so... Well, the tangible benefits are basically the packs are 100% recyclable. Now they are made with 50% recycled material. The, we have a higher percentage of green actives. So there are many benefits there. But I have to say that the, the key benefits is still the same top performance, what we do is to make it greener. And in some cases, which is super clever from my R&D partners, we include more green ingredients to boost up the formulations, which is the sweet spot when we can do everything. Um, But there is definitely also, as you said, a few good sort of like factor because it's highly persuasive. People feel good, of course, if they buy something which is greener. So they feel they can do their part by just carefully choosing the products they purchase. So we are giving a little bit of both. There are some tangible benefits. There is a few good uh, factor. And, um, and it attracts both the environmental conscious as well as the ones who have minimal mental willingness for such products, which for me is the, the key. I know I keep stressing this, but this is for me key to the Pursue or more relaunch. And given the sheer size of the brand, whatever we do, and the 50% recycled material is a good one. So when we announced that, look, now our bottles have 50% recycled material. I have to say that 50% of people applauded us, including like the press. That's great. You included 50% of uh, recycled material in your packs. 50% of people just said, why only 50? Why are you not doing 80? Why are you not doing 100? And I'm like, oh God. But uh, pretty much, even though we cannot do it all in one day, we are trying to bring people on the journey with us and basically acknowledging, oh, yes, we have 50%, 100 would be ideal. But the point is 50% 
in a brand uh, which is present in 80 markets and reaches 1.6 billion people a year is massive. Even if you combine all these smaller green brands that you see in the world, they wouldn't get to like 30% of the positive impact we are having by the 50% of PCR. So that is for me really important, how we democratize uh, the idea of a clean future and a green agenda, but also make people aware that one, it's a journey. We, we do acknowledge and we say it's not perfect, but we are going to get there and we have our commitments. And at the same time, being very aware that the impact is just massive given the size of the brand. What, what sales effect have you seen so far with Omo Purcell? Very positive one. So we launched these new campaign products in the UK, France and Australia just uh, two months ago. We have all the other 80 markets that I've mentioned, like 76 to come. Uh, in the next year, but the the early results are extremely positive. So, so far, great. Did you also, I mean, one of the fascinating things which I've discovered through behavioral science is there is always this danger that if you promote a product in particular as being environmentally friendly, people tend to perceive, uh, even if it isn't true, they tend to perceive reduced efficacy because they assume that gain in one dimension comes at the cost of another. And so one of the fatal mistakes, I think, which was made when you promoted a product exclusively on its green credentials was that people, uh, by the way, this didn't just apply to before purchase. People actually believed it had done less of a good job. So, you know, so so it actually affected perception of results, not just perception of product. And so, you know, things cleaned with green dishwasher powders, people all believed that their plates were less clean than they had been before, even if there was no real objective difference. So that kind of trade-off that sort of, it seems to be an implicit assumption in the human brain that you can only achieve an, you know, an advance in one direction at some cost somewhere else. Uh, did, did you have to sort of actively research to prepare for that? Yes. And uh, yes, indeed, we, we had to. And that was so much crafting to make sure we could get into a, a piece of advertising that consumers would first understand, yes, they are encouraging change and a change in my behavior. They are showing the changing in their products, but they are still giving me the cleaning that I want and I'm not compromising. And that's why, in fact, our line is different things kinder to the planet. So we always use the two things and we embrace the paradox. Yes, yes. we can be kinder to the planet and tougher on things. It is a fact. I'm not going to change consumers' perception on, on this idea that, yes, if it's kinder to the planet, can it be tough? So we embrace the paradox and that's why we say tougher, kinder. One other, one other interesting thing I think you'll have to do with uh, is to work with washing machine manufacturers um, because one of the problems I think you face is that because washing machines all offer a 90 degree setting and then there's typically 60 degrees, then 40, then 30, okay, then 20 feels at the extreme low end. And I think you need to create dummy choice here or encourage washing machine manufacturers to have a cold wash and a lukewarm wash in between 20 uh, to exploit the Goldilocks effect. Because you know, the natural human behavior is when in doubt, you go for the one in the middle. And unfortunately, the one in the middle now is 60 degrees, particularly true with blokes, I've noticed, who tend to, you know, 
crank things up a little bit more. You know, blokes tend to, you know, if if the prescription says take two pills a day, blokes will tend to take three. And so is there quite a lot of work to be done on this kind of choice design of, of washing machine equipment, do you think, in this area? Yes, that is. And we, we started a number of different partnerships with washing machine manufacturers, especially in China, because they, they are mostly coming now from China. And we also see a rise in smart connected washing machines, which basically you connect it on your phone, expectedly that would happen, and similar to Nest, and you can control everything, and the machines actually can weight the amount of clothes that you have and understand what, how much detergent you need and what would be the perfect um, washing, wash, uh, washing temperature, amount of water, etc. So yes, we do have, in fact, we just launched as well a mix for these smart machines in Sweden, I think two weeks ago. So we are exploring that as well. And you are absolutely right. In fact, I would say that the laundry uh, world cannot exist without, um, let me put it differently. I would say that laundry products and the evolution of those products and then the greener agenda go hand in hand with washing machine penetration. So, and this is everywhere. In fact, the washing machine penetration, I, I always look at it as a sign of women emancipation. So when obviously you go to the rural areas in India, people would still hand wash and when they can buy what we call a twin tub, that is a big deal. And likewise, when you move from a twin tub to a top loader and or from top loader to a front loader, which is what happened to me seven years ago when I moved to the UK, I was like, my God, I'm going to use a front loader now. I felt super important. Where were you before? In Brazil. You're in Brazil. And they still want, do they have kind of American-made Maytag top loaders? Do they have something? Yeah, yeah the American. Have, you see, I have to admit that secretly my fantasy is to have a Maytag top loader <laughs> industrialized thing. Of course, that's a very interesting one, by the way, which is partly because of the, uh, the most American homes outside very large cities have a kind of basement. Or you have even, you know, a completely separate utility room. And so American washing machines tend to be kind of slightly industrial because they don't have to actually, you know, fit in with a German designed kitchen in the same way. And uh, funny enough, yeah, you always want what you can't have. So you found your front loader wildly exciting. Precisely. Um, the, the trade press has been fairly positive, I think it's fair to say. Is that, is that true? Yes. Uh, yes, very, very positive. And especially, I would say, because of the transparency and openness about we are on a journey. And this was something that we decided to embrace the whole point on the 50%, which is it's not perfect because arguably a lot of people would say, why is Percy even trying to be greener? You shouldn't be. And again, another paradox, I would say that this entire uh, campaign positioning and advertising is about embracing those paradoxes, be it like a tougher kinder or how can you be mainstream yet greener? But that is our intention, because if I, we were never going to be able to really make this a healthier planet if you just rely on niche, smaller brands to do the job. And if we don't come and do it, it's not going to work. But to uh, respond to your question, I think the transparency is what made uh, uh, the trade press really positive about what we are doing. 
That's very interesting. I, I, by the way, I, I, I will pick up on that because your point about the washing machine, I can't remember the economist, but there's a very famous economist who made the point that he said, if you look at the ultimate economic impact of technology, the washing machine was more important than the internet. And of course, that sounds like a really weird thing to say when you first think of it, particularly given the noise that's been made about the internet versus the noise that was made about the washing machine. But of course, it... Um, uh, female emancipation, it was very difficult for women to enter the workplace full time. If in a typical household, you would have, I mean, this is something, you know, which my grandmother would have told me about. Um, uh, you, you, you had a day dedicated to laundry. And if you didn't have domestic servants, that was one day of a woman's time was essentially dedicated to the whole business of of cleaning clothes and then putting them through things like mangles, which I can still remember from my distant childhood when, you know, a home might have this thing, which was a, it was a pair of rollers, which you squeezed the water out of it. It was the, it was the precursor to a spin dryer effectively. Um, and so in terms of allowing, you know, essentially 50% of the population to become economically active, the washing machine, how, how does washing machine penetration compare f across different countries now? Wow. Um, in places like the UK and France, it's like 99% of washing machine penetration, obviously. But if you go to the other end of the spectrum, like in Bangladesh, it's less than five. So we still have to deal with a, a, well, a number of, like I'd say, nuances country-wise to make sure that we can offer products for different as we say, washing typologies, because it's remarkably different. And it will take a while for them to catch up, even though I strongly believe that there will be a moment, again, this is why I mentioned the uh, Chinese washing machine manufacturers, that they will be much cheaper. And uh, probably South Asia and India one day will do the same movement they did with mobiles. Because I remember I moved from having a phone at home to then having this Nokia mobile with like a green screen, black green, to then finally having an iPhone. I still remember when I bought one because it was, oh my God, like potentially the most relevant thing. I bought it like in, in that year. But in India, for instance, people moved from having no phones in slums to then having like a smartphone. Yeah. So I, what I'm trying to say is that if you look at the evolution of washing machines in Latin America, it took around 30 years to go from 15 to now I think we are around like 85%. Uh, but I don't think South Asia potentially will follow the same path. I think they are going to go much faster, given, of course, how cheaper the washing machines will be. How does water use compare between hand washing? Because hand washing is fairly water intensive in some yes. cases, isn't it? Yes. And this was something that surprised me. I've been working laundry for 10 years. And, um, and I remember that back in the day when I started, I always thought that machines would use more water because I was mm. like, oh, my God. But no, you're right. It's quite the opposite. Hand washing is much more water intense than washing machines. And the more sophisticated the machines are, the more you can control the amount of water they use. You still, the, uh, the American top loaders still use a lot of water, yeah. but as you go to front loaders, and then as I said, to the smart machines nowadays, they use much less. And even better, they can flex it according to the number of loads you, you have. I'm always intrigued by counterintuitive technologies because I'd always assume my washing machine was much more water 
wasteful than say washing by hand and in fact you've got a wonderful product called comfort one rinse haven't you which is designed for use in the developing world this is where people do wash by hand but the clever thing is it's not only a fabric conditioner it also removes the residue of detergent from the clothes in a single rinse so you don't have to rinse three times and use three bucket loads of water you can just do it once and that's that's always difficult because you have that problem of just add an egg that people always believe that something that's easier must be worse. One wonderful technology, which uh, I had a kind of very, very green friend uh, who removed the waste disposal unit from their kitchen because they kind of thought it was like, you know, the example of American devil technology. In fact, waste disposal units are extremely good because decomposing food that decomposes underwater produces far fewer greenhouse gases than on landfill. So actually, you know, essentially flushing your food waste, you know, potato peelings and so on, uh, actually down the, uh, uh, down the pipe is a much better thing to do. So that's one other message I think we'll have to get across, which is the assumption always is that progress inevitably comes at environmental cost. And there are quite a few cases where it doesn't. I mean, one thing I do, I'm going to have to ask you about. Now, you don't have many tumble dryer products. You do have those comfort sheets, which you pop in your tumble dryer. The American habit with drying your clothes in a tumble dryer, even if you live in a house with a garden in Arizona. I have to go, of all, of all the behaviours, okay. And what it is, it's really fascinating. It's because essentially hanging your clothes out in the US, in the US is associated with extreme poverty, you see, because it means you can't afford a dryer. And so basically, if you're in a kind of upper middle class neighborhood, even in Arizona, for crying out loud, where your clothes, if you hang them on a line, they'd be dry in about 15 minutes and would arguably be nicer because they dried in fresh air. OK, but you, your neighbors would come around and go, um, look, if you don't, don't mind, um, you know, it's equivalent effectively having clothes out on a line in the US is equivalent to having a car on bricks up in your front drive. It's like there goes the neighborhood. And is there any way you've looked at, I, I agree it would come at a slight cost to comforts, rather nice little sheets, which I buy, which you pop in the tumble dryer. I live on the second floor in defence, okay? So, um, but uh, is, is there anything you've looked at there to encourage, um, you know, the natural drying of clothes in the US? Yes, we definitely want to encourage that. But I have to say that we try as much as possible to focus on the things we can change because we've been trying to do, for instance, water saving products like the Comfort One rings, which you mentioned. And it's always complicated because we don't know if people will actually do it. And it's a behavioral change that it's usually difficult for us to track. No, but we definitely do. Part of it is, as you said, a societal issue. Funny enough, like hanging your clothes outside in India is a sign of success because they are beautifully spotless clean. But I do understand the point on Arizona and I can see that happening now in Sao Paulo as well. I, I was brought up in the middle of Brazil where pretty much like India, if you, would, if you would hang your clothes outside, it would be all white and beautiful and smell good. So not only that, it would be a sign of you are a good housewife look what have you just done. It was literally the middle of Brazil, okay? But then when you go to the likes of Sao Paulo, which is much more in tune with America, is when you see that, no, you're not going to do it because, come on, I have a washing machine or I have a tumble dryer. So absolutely, no, we encourage. We know that it's 
much more complicated than adding the, the uh, recycled material on bottles. But uh, yes, we do. What about, what about other areas of household products? Are there any, uh, I mean, uh, a day two, which I, by the way, I'm going to plug this. I'm going to you know, happily consider this a little bit of product placement for day two, which seems to me eminently sensible, particularly under lockdown, actually. It's a very, very sensible product. Have you, by the way, have you noticed a fall in, la- in laundry use during lockdown generally? Yes. So. I, I've certainly noticed a fall in my own level of personal hygiene, it has to be said. I, I don't like to admit that on air, but I, I could probably say uh, that, um, uh, you know, uh, re- re-wearing shirts has slightly come back. <laughs> but, uh, no, we saw the two things. So in the first uh, few months of lockdown, back in April and May, we actually saw higher washing frequency. Because what was happening, I think people in general were trying to cope with the new world and they were washing clothes more frequently. They were cleaning their houses more frequently, even though they were not necessarily leaving their houses. The idea that you have to constant wash and make sure that they are hygienically clean was very strong. So in the first few months of uh, the pandemic, we saw a rise on washing frequency. But as you rightly said, People got used and now we see a drop. So unfortunately, in the majority of the markets, uh, the market is declining because people are just washing less frequently. We seem, I think, um, whether rightly or wrongly, I think we've got the right idea in that um, uh, keeping windows open and keeping things airy and also meeting outdoors is a lower risk. I think we've grasped that. I think we are fair in terms of what you might call contact-based rather than airborne-based infection seems to have dropped. And I don't know whether that's entirely scientifically valid. I mean, we wiped down all our posts and all our groceries in the first few weeks. And to be absolutely candid, we don't do that anymore. Um, And I I wonder if there's any scientific basis for that or whether it's just people becoming a bit, you know, a bit lazy or a bit less risk averse. I don't know. What's the science behind that? Because, I mean, certainly nobody worries about their post, whereas they kind of did in March. No, absolutely. No, I think, yes, of course, we, we have a lot of evidence that the coronavirus and other type of viruses or bacteria could uh, stay alive uh, on materials like plastic or paper or clothes. Uh, but we do know as well that as far as I'm concerned and the data that I have, there hasn't been a single case confirmed of someone who, who got a coronavirus because they touched, I don't know, as you said, like a, an Amazon box if I may say. So I think with time, people just got more relaxed. I don't have any scientific evidence to say to you, but definitely that's the behavior that we saw. People just started to relax because I think they realize I'm locked at home. I did not get the virus, even though I'm still receiving loads of like Amazon boxes and I'm not wiping them. I suppose we would have seen a kind of epidemic among postmen or something, wouldn't we, or or (laughs) delivery drivers, had this been a real problem. Um, but no, it's interesting. And it, but uh, so, are there, are there products which you're looking at now? Because it strikes me in China, of course, in the early days, they sprayed the streets. There don't seem to be any kind of virucidal. I mean, there is a thing, hypochlorous acid. Uh, there don't seem to be virucidal air-based products, which would, if you like, complement the efficacy of a mask. Yeah. So that you know, if you went into a hotel room, you could just spray it with something harmless to humans. Now, I think the, the other one is ultraviolet light, isn't it, is they're also looking at as a virucidal yes. agent. Are, are Unilever looking at any products along these lines? 
Yes. So the first one that we launched, I'm, I'm going to advertise it now. We launched it literally three weeks ago in the UK. It's available at Asda is a sanitizer. So, but it's still a laundry sanitizer, but it's one of the most effective products to kill viruses and bacteria. And in fact, we just got now the data showing that we can kill the coronavirus. And it's excellent, for instance, uh, for cleaning masks. You don't even need to put the masks in your washing machine. You put your mask in a bucket with water, one cup of uh, our Persu sanitizer, and then after five minutes, you remove, rinse it, and use it again. Killed, done, gone. So this is one of the things we are doing to boost up the the laundry uh, when it comes to hygiene. And another product which we are exploring, and uh, we might be able to launch it in quarter one next year, is a spray that you could use on your shoes, on your masks. Again, the same intention of the sanitizer to kill. Uh, viruses and bacteria. Shoes, for instance, is something that I was uh, surprised because I lived in Asia before, so I just got used to the idea that you got home and you remove your shoes. And yeah. this was one of the habits that I, I have it now for the last 10 years. But we saw that habit increasing even in places like Europe. So people were so concerned, oh, my shoes might contain the virus. And that's the reason why we thought, okay, why not having a spray that you just arrive home, spray your shoes and make sure that there wouldn't be any viruses there. So yes, that we're exploring. We didn't get to the point that we can spray the, the, uh, the environment, but at least shoes and masks. Because interestingly, Trump's observation about bleach, which was totally derided, had some basis in science, which is there is this product hypochlorous acid, I think, which the body, in fact, produces itself as a viral defense. And so um, uh, there, there is, you know, there is some potential to look at those areas of air cleaning products, which strikes me as interesting. Um, anything, anything else you can tip us off on within the constraints of confidentiality in terms of new products? Oh, no, I think the one I can is definitely these sprays. And um, another one is that we are looking for more and more ways. That's all I can say about having less plastic or having no plastic at all in Dirt is Good because we believe that it is important that we just try to remove it completely. Of course, we can make better and less, but we want to go to a no plastic route. That's another thing we are planning to do. And, and of course, as, as I said before, we are going to be more and more renewable as far as surfactants and cleaning agents are concerned. Are you looking at subscription? I know famously Unilever bought Harry's razors. You have a shareholding in Gusto, for example. Um, uh, are you looking at some form of subscription, which I suppose can be part of the environmental agenda, can't it? Because you can have more elaborate permanent containers, which are multi-use, and then the refills can come essentially through subscription. Yes, we are. And we first we developed, we do have some mixes that could have what we call uh, high value density, so concentrated mixes that you can buy, for instance, at Amazon or in any other retailer, then you could get a, a little bottle of like a detergent, which you can uh, receive at home. And then you could have a primary pack and just dilute it at home and, and use it. So then you can subscribe to the little one. Yes, we are looking at, into that as well. Very, very interesting tip, by the way. If you have to perform, it's a bit like just add an egg. If you have to perform a little amount of work, 
So diluting something, for example, uh, the consumer belief in efficacy is higher. And there's a thing in behavioral science called the effort reward heuristic, which is it's rather like araldite, which is because you had to mix two things together. We believed the glue was more effective because there was a little degree of extra work that went into its application. And in the same way, apparently, that applies to environmental products. If you have a concentrate, it's oddly better to ask the person to dilute it than to tell them to use it at full strength. Because if they use it at full strength, A, the low volume makes them think, well, that can't possibly be yeah. working. There's hardly any of it in there, which was always a problem with concentrated um, uh, fabric conditioners, for example. People lost faith, you know. Um, and the second thing is it seems that the extra little amount of fiddly work actually adds to the perception of efficacy. Yes, it adds to the perception of efficacy. And it add, somehow it also adds value to consumers because there is some magic in doing that, I have to say. I was honestly surprised when we started developing those products. I was like, who on earth we want to dilute it? But of course, I've been working in the category for years, so I know that a concentrated product would work. But when we started um, giving it to people to try and experiment, they, they found it magical. They were like, oh, my God. So I put it here and then it will dilute and it's thick and then it transforms into like a very thin liquid. And yes, there is magic in doing that. Any areas outside home care where you can see the same environmental consciousness permeating into Unilever brands, I suppose? The cleaner agenda is something that uh, will happen and it's, it is happening across all of Unilever divisions, be it in Dove. So... As you know, Dove was the first mainstream brand to have the PETA, PETA certification and be eating foods, foods remarkably because there is a massive food waste. So this is something that any other VP of Unilever who would sit here would tell you the programs that you're doing. So definitely uh, across uh, the board, you're going to see more and more uh, green products from Unilever. Are there any collective behaviours? I think there's something to be done with recycling, which is that when I recycle my Nespresso capsules, because it involves a bit of additional effort, okay, although it involves additional effort, I get more of an emotional reward because where, when I throw my recycling rubbish away, and okay, in Seven Oaks, thankfully they haven't gone to that ghastly fortnightly system. Um, but so we do. We, we can get recycling collections every week alongside our garbage collections. But I still feel I'm throwing it out. Okay, I still feel it's going kind of to a big truck that crushes it up. And I have the sneaking suspicion that it all ends up in the same place. Whereas, do you think there are cases where we could work with Amazon or other delivery companies where they can collect at the same time as they deliver? So, you know, you could, you could box up your stuff and they could actually collect it. And somehow I just feel better about it because, you know, if you think about it, all those vans are kind of going back empty. And it would seem quite a sensible use of dis distribution mechanisms, whether it's Gusto or whether it's Amazon or DPD or whatever, yeah. to actually build in a, and it would also get rid of your boxes at the same time. Uh, do you, are you looking at kind of across the board things at a Unilever brand level rather than just an individual category level? Yes, we are. And uh, you are absolutely right that the consumer's perception is like it will all go to the same place. How do I know? So we are also doing something quite interesting, which is to put 
more and more uh, QR codes in our packs because you, you might have seen this rise of QR codes now because of COVID. So you go to a restaurant and even the menu, I've, I've, I found it super odd the first time they said, oh, here's the menu. And it was a QR code. And I'm like, well, what should I do? <laughs> and uh, But now we are adding QR codes more and more in our packs. And one of the information that we are going to give to people is where what is the provenance of our ingredients and what will happen once you discard those ingredients. So absolutely, I think it's, a, it's twofold. One is how we can partner with such companies to make sure that we can collect the waste. But there is also a point about how to give people the knowledge and the information about what we do. So where the, where the raw material of their products came from and what happens to your pack once it is gone. It's still a long way to get there, but definitely. But we will start by adding the codes and providing more and more information. That is absolutely fantastic. I mean, Tati Nindenberg, Vice President of Marketing for Home Care at Unilever, absolutely huge thanks for your time today. It's been fantastic, and I could have happily gone on for another hour. But unfortunately, <laughs> that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, the podcast is brought to you by ALF Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, simply visit the website alfinsight, that's A-L-F insight, or one word, dot com. Uh, the series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then better still, you know, optimize the algorithm by giving us a like. So for now, thanks very much for listening, and um, I'll be back shortly. Tati, once again, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 